Welcome back to another episode of our Eagle Perspective podcast. I am Mike Siciliano, Dean of Students of the Upper School, and today uh, we're going to do something a little different. I'm excited about it. We're going to talk philosophy. Uh, I have two individuals with me today that I'd love to introduce. The first is our philosophy teacher, really the founder of our philosophy program, Jenny Catanio. Jenny, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, I know this subject is near and dear to your heart, as it is to our head of schools, the one and only Rod Gilbert. Glad to be here. Glad to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yes, so there are not, I can speak from experience, and let's just come out with it. Um, Jenny started our philosophy program and and really has developed it for, what, 15 years now? Is that right? Yes, about 15 years. Okay, and it's been a labor of love. Rod joined us three years ago yep, and is one of right. the more philosophical people I've ever met. <laughs> that's funny. Is that fair to say, Jenny, <laughs> in your experience? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, do, you mean, do you mean nerdy? No, nerdy? I don't mean, I mean deep thinking. I mean capable of, you know, anything I say is going to sound like kissing up now. So I guess I'll move on. <laughs> a raise but, for you and my son. Yeah, there we go. That's what I was going for. There's a bookshelf over there with an incredible amount of philosophical works. Yes. So, yes. Um, and then... I have to come to myself. So there was one year in which Jenny and all her talents was so busy, she couldn't teach the course. And so I taught the course. And so I'm like the, I'm like the third wheel of this <laughs> philosophical discussion. I'm just, I'm honored to be in the room. Um, so we're gonna look today at uh, a famous philosophical work from Plato called The Allegory of the Cave. And um, it has a lot of lessons For us as humans, it is something that we're going to talk a little bit about, Jenny, how you use it in your class, Mm -hmm. but also, I think, with all three of us of of what we can learn from it as humans and how it sort of applies to Santa Fe. Is that a fair explanation? Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. So at Jenny's suggestion in true philosophy teacher form, rather than just describing it, you said, well, we ought to read for them the allegory of the cave. Let's do it. Okay, so Let's uh, do it. so Jenny's going to read it, and Rod has a role. That's right. Um, I think there's a lot of yeses in here, so I may sneak in some requests that I have just in the middle of the story. <laughs> that's perfect. Right before you speak, Rod. That's, that's perfect. Okay. That's perfect. All right, so Jenny, why don't you uh, get us started? Here is Plato's Allegory of the Cave. I want you to go on to picture the enlightenment or ignorance of our human condition somewhat as follows. Imagine an underground chamber like a cave with a long entrance open to the daylight and as wide as the cave. In this chamber are men who have been prisoners there since they were children, their legs and necks being so fastened that they can only look straight ahead of them and cannot turn their heads. Some way off, behind and higher up, a fire is burning, and between the fire and the prisoners and above them runs a road, in front of which a curtain wall has been built, like the screen at puppet shows between the operators and their audience, above which they show their puppets. Ah, I see. Imagine further that there are men carrying all sorts of gear along behind the curtain wall, projecting above it and including figures of men and animals made of wood and stone and all sorts of other materials, and that some of these men, as you would expect, are talking and some are not. That's an odd picture, an odd sort of prisoner. They are drawn from life. Tell me, do you think our prisoners could see anything of themselves or their fellows except the shadows thrown by the fire on the wall of the cave opposite of them? How could they see anything else if they were prevented from moving their heads all their lives? And would they see anything more of the objects carried along the road? Well, of course not. Then, if they were able to talk to each other, would they not assume that the shadows they saw were the real things? Inevitably, they would. 
And if the wall of their prison opposite them reflected sound, don't you think they would suppose whenever one of the passerbys on the road spoke that the voice belonged to the shadows passing before them? They would be bound to think so. And so in every way they would believe the shadows of the objects we mentioned were the whole truth. Yes, inevitably. Then think what would naturally happen to one of them if they were released from their bonds Hmm. and cured of their delusions. Suppose one of them were let loose and suddenly compelled to stand up and turn his head and look and walk towards the fire. All these actions would be painful. He would be too dazzled to see properly the objects of which he used to see as shadows. What do you think he would say if he was told that what he used to see was so much empty nonsense and that he was now nearer reality and seeing it more correctly because he was turned toward objects that were more real? And if on top of that he were compelled to say what each of the passing objects was when it was pointed out to him. Don't you think he would be at a loss and think that he used to see far truer than the objects now being pointed out to him? Yes, far truer. And if he were made to look directly at the light of fire, it would hurt his eyes, and he would turn back and retreat to the things he could see properly, which he would think really clearer than the things being shown to him. Yes, yes. Hmm, and if he were forcibly dragged up the steep and rugged ascent and not let go until he'd been dragged out into the sunlight. The process would be a painful one, to which he would much object, and when he emerged into the light, his eyes would be so dazzled by the glare of it that he wouldn't be able to see a single one of the things he was now being told were real. Certainly not at first. Because, of course, he would need to grow accustomed to the light before he could see things in the upper world outside the cave. First, he would find it easier to look at shadows, next at the reflections of men and other objects in water, later on at the objects themselves. After that, he would find it easier to look at the heavenly bodies, the sky at night, or the light of the moon and stars rather than the sun and its light by day. Hmm, of course. And the last thing he would be able to do would be able to look directly at the sun itself and gaze at it without using reflections in water or any other medium, but that as it is in itself. Yes, yes, that must come last. Well, we can end it here, and hopefully that gives you, as you are listening at home, a a general idea of what this myth or allegory of the cave is. And it's the idea that we are chained up inside a cave, and in order to be enlightened, we have to be exposed to something if not dragged forcibly out into the light. Jenny, why don't we start with, for you as a philosophy teacher, when Mm -hmm. when you first expose your students to this, what are some of the initial questions that you ask them or conversations that you have with them that that stand out to you as being the most profound or moments, these aha moments for them? Well, I think in the beginning, it's just getting them to reflect back on when was a time in class where you had that aha moment? Maybe it was in a math class when the the concept was very obscure and then all of a sudden you had enlightenment, if you will, and you could understand it. So things that that had formerly been in shadows and you, you couldn't really decipher became clear to you. And so we start with the easy things like that and then we, we move on into probably a deeper aspect of what does the allegory mean. When you're in discussions about the dialogues, or this one in particular about the cave, how are you cultivating a sense of wonder in the students? Because some students mm-hmm. have the muscle of wonder and amazement and others don't. How do you cultivate a sense of wonder? I think one of the things I do is leave them in their uncomfortability at oh, times. Okay. 
I don't jump right in and answer their questions. That's and good. I mm-hmm, and That's I good. also let them circle around with kind of a safe person, if you will, yeah. where they can kind of test their ideas. Because I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to wake up their intellect and wake up even that sense of curiosity in them that sometimes can be crushed out if they're looking for what they think is the right answer. Mm-hmm. What does the teacher want? Well, I don't, I don't necessarily want anything but for them to wonder and question and think and explore. Well, it's true sometimes that students and adults alike, we want to be able to ask a question and then just give me the answer. Mm-hmm. Just give me the answer and then I, as a student, often just want to know, is this going to be on the test? Exactly. And, uh, but what you're doing is cultivating, you're, you're actually forcing the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to create new muscles to go try to find the answer. Mm-hmm. You're just making it harder on them. Well, and that, that actually segues to, I think, part of the key of the story is huh. mm-hmm. the learning sometimes is uncomfortable to oh. the point of pain, That's right? A good point. Um, and That's not necessarily point. physical pain, but this process of my goodness, I thought everything was one way and I'm starting to see the shape of something that might be different and yeah. it's really uncomfortable. So I have a different question. So I had an animated thing in my head about the cave and not until I saw the movie The Matrix huh. did I really understand the cataclysmic shift yeah. of the cave yeah. analogy. So you went high, everybody's nodding in the yes. room. Well, first of all, I don't know if Jenny knows, I actually showed the Matrix to the philosophy class the year I taught it. I don't know if you approve or disapprove. Well, so, I love the Matrix. Oh, However, showed, in movies class. in class, I did. Oy vey. <laughs> <laughs> did Mr. Hannon uh, approve that? <laughs> oh, you know, I'm not saying I asked him for permission. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> so you showed it. I did. What, what, okay, so why? And then how, what was the response? Well, the we, were, we were By looking. By the way, they just finished filming Matrix 4 in New York. Oh, that's, see, now that's exciting to me. Yeah, I just heard. So um, we were in the midst of looking at a number of, I mean, much of early philosophy is what is is true, what is real, how much, what can we actually know, Mm -hmm. you know, are our senses, you know, proof of knowledge? And I think the Matrix asked that question in in a visually powerful way, right? I can you know, eat this food, taste it, see it, touch it, and yet it wasn't actually reality in the movie, right? And so, um, you and know, they said this chair's not real. Correct. <laughs> right. And then he said, "What's real?" Yeah. The that blew and, at the top and you know, you have off. the one character who wants to go back in. Yeah. Because he just says, "I don't care if it's not actually real. I want to make it my reality." Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there's lots of good, good questions and, and conversations there. So, so did the students connect it well? Oh, yeah. I mean, had they already um, seen the movie, or was it in the it movie? It was probably. It was it came out. Like 99. Yeah, yeah. Most of them hadn't been born yet. Actually, all of them hadn't been born yet. Yeah. Um, But uh, I would say it was maybe like only a quarter had seen it. But they all liked it to the point where they were like acting out scenes from it the whole rest of the year. (laughs) So, you know. um, Yeah. Anyway. It's good. I'm glad to know that you showed the movie. Yeah. I was sitting here listening. I was thinking, I can't think of a better Mm -hmm. modern cinematography, like, I can't think of a better feature film right. that mm-hmm. showed it. And yeah. I've seen some cartoons of the cave analogy on YouTube, mm-hmm. and they're they're accurate, but they're boring mm-hmm. compared to what yeah. the movie The Matrix yeah. did. The only other reference I can come up with it would be the marble in Men in Black. Oh, is there a marble at the end? What now? What now? <laughs> Say that again. 
Oh, I think at the end of, of one of those movies. Oh, at the end he opens a locker. And there's some yes, something with and a marble. It's like, and it, right, and it's like the whole earth is really just inside this marble, inside this locker. Yes. So here we yes. go. That, that, the, the Men in Black movies are great for yeah. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Mentorship mm-hmm. galore. Right, too. Yeah, there was yeah, one other yes. movie. This is one of my favorite yes. mentorship movie series. Are you thinking of Inception? The dream no. within the dream and the, the dream top within spinning the dream. at the end, right? I'm good. thinking of the yeah. one where it's uh, the that he lives in the domed. Oh goodness, this is Jim Carrey. He's inside. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Jenny, you're gonna laugh. Truman Show. Yeah. Truman Show. Oh yeah. And guess what? I showed that at the end of the year. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Who gave you permission to do this? All last summer, when the pandemic was like super yeah. crazy, mm-hmm. yeah. I just kept telling everybody, I feel like I'm in the Truman Show. Right. Like at some point, a light's going to fall yes. out of the sky. Yes. Yeah. And they're going, hey, Rod, we've been following you since you were a little yeah. baby. Like at some point, I thought, I'm just going to row the boat out there and get yeah. out of this. So, thing. did you start driving your car around just fearing last minute? I wanted, to. Minute, I wanted you know, to. down crazy streets. I was looking behind the bushes, yeah. see if a, a mic boom would come down, you know? <laughs> That's how crazy the world has been. Yeah, it's you know? true. Yes. It's true. Okay, so, so you did the Truman Show. I did. I mean, again, it's, a, it's another, you know, um, at some point we got into like nature and nurture yeah, and, yeah. Uh, right, you know, That's and great. yeah, so. Okay, so you were going somewhere with The Matrix. Well, I was just curious what other movies are out. Like I, the only one I could really think of was uh, The Matrix. I mean, yeah. I couldn't think of another one that really yeah. did it in a Tr- tasty yeah. fashion. Truman Show, Truman Show Truman is also up there. there as far as, you know, what what is real and okay. nature mm-hmm. nurture. And- if we don't have good Christian mentors with these kids as they begin to have their eyes open right, to certain right, things, right. there are times when I think the world is just too much for them. And they do. They want to crawl back into the Matrix. They want to stay in the Truman Show. They don't want to really know what's out there because they feel like there's an either-or to this thing. And as we hold their hands as the older generation, and I'll definitely be part of that, but that we can walk with them into this dynamic tension of both and and do it with the light of Christ. It's not an either-or. It's not an either-or. And, and the things of the last 12 months should not lead us to despair, right? They actually lead oh. to hope. I mean, we're, we're, in, we're in some sort of cave process right now. That's right. right? We, we are in some sort of cave process. We are. And those kind of titanic shifts are not easy to endure. My, the kids in the philosophy class are actually writing an essay on hope. Oh, and really? it's going to be submitted to a national conference put on by Plato philosophy learning and teaching organization and it's the it's the preeminent pre-college philosophy organization in our country and uh there's not there's not a competing organization called aristotle that might challenge (laughs) there is not only plato (laughs) school of athens (laughs) smack down between the two philosophers (laughs) so i'm 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 eager to coach our kids into a place where one of them could write that competitive essay just saying there is a little competitive edge here (laughs) that's really good maybe rod you can speak a little bit to what is our role as a school in that process, right? I mean, I think um, a lot of people have this view of education of, you know, you teach them the facts, they learn stuff, they do well on the test, and they go out and then are successful because of what they've learned. But there's this other sort of process of curiosity and the unsettledness of learning that things might be different than you think, and and what's the role of the school? Well, I think that some people think that when they come to a school, they're they're just going to be given the facts, the facts, the facts. And that reminds me of a quote from Charles Dickens' book, uh, Hard Times. 
And in the opening two pages, a teacher is demanding that the children learn the facts, the facts, the facts. And Dickens was brilliant enough to name the teacher Mr. Chokum Child. <laughs> and it's frightening. And so as much as many people want to come first just to tell them exactly what to think or hear the top ten things, what we're more interested in is critical thinking skills and, if anything, opening up their minds to different ways of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. We're sending them off into a very complex world mm -hmm. that's full of amazing wonders. And that we don't want them just to have rudimentary understanding of things. How do we determine when is the right time to show just a shape of something or reflection of something? And how, when is the right time to show the sun, right? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I would say that we have a very unique situation at Santa Fe because we have a preschool, the little tiny ones, three years old, up to 18-year-olds. And we have the benefit of a singular school to gauge everything in an age-appropriate way. We know we don't have to teach them everything in fifth grade because we've got them at least seven more years. Some of them eight more years, depending on how uh, they need a little more help. And uh, But I, I think that we look for an age-appropriate way to open up new things to them, and we have the benefit of doing that as a single stream. Jenny, what's something that kids in your class, or really young adults in your class, struggle with with this allegory? The challenge to it is, is kind of like you said, in the beginning of the allegory, you're just dragged a little bit closer to the light. And those first maybe aha moments, the kids will step out of their comfort zone and say, yeah, I didn't used to like a certain kind of music, hmm. but then I got introduced to jazz or right. classical, and I realized that there's actually merits to it. It's interesting. I can see why other people appreciate it. And so that first level of being ex you know, exposed to the light is a very, very exciting level where you can step outside of your particular zone and, and step into the shoes of the other. Hmm. Where I think it gets more exciting is once they, they take that second step and they are, if you, if you go with the allegory, they're dragged out. There are times when the kids are against their will being put in a space where they, they're gonna question things. And I, and I have found, especially in the current, just after confinement, after all of the yeah. stress and strain of, of this educational complexity that we find ourselves in, I'm finding that kids are either afraid to ask the question yeah. in a very safe environment, or they're indifferent. Hmm. And so Interesting. some of the things that I push them to do, I guess the quotable Catania, the future belongs to those who can ask a question that Google cannot answer. Mm -hmm. And so as they begin to ask those questions, I'm like, come on, you guys, you have to have questions. And in the beginning, they're even afraid to have a question. Mm -hmm. Is it the right question? Like, don't worry about whether it's the right question or not. <laughs> Just go have a question. The, like back to, is it on the is test? Is it on the test? Right, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not on the test. Sometimes when I stop a class like that, say, okay, mm -hmm. everybody get A's this semester. Yes. Now that we got that out of the way, yeah, yes. let's go be human. You are yeah. guaranteed an A. Yeah. Now show me that you can yeah. earn it by thinking. It, right. it frees them up. It frees yeah. them it up, frees them definitely. Up. So one of the things that is really a joy for me to do in the class, um, one of the cool things where I was forced out of my comfort zone, there was a year, once upon a time, at Santa Fe where I taught writing to publish. And uh, definitely I have, a, I have a master's in English 
but was not comfortable teaching that class. In fact, I cried when I was supposed to teach that class. And the backwards blessing of that class is I taught blogging to kids, never having blogged myself, and it has unleashed an incredible amount of creativity, not only amongst me as a teacher and other teachers, but, but with the kids. So the way that this goes is we kick things around in class. They've got the freedom to di discuss, debate. What does it mean to be out in the light? What are things that you feel like you've been enlightened in? Mm. And then, then they go write about it, and they'll post it to a blog. Mm. And then they'll find images that illustrate what they've learned. And so I think um, for me to be able to come clear with them, these are the ways I've been pushed out of my comfort zone, and you kids are receiving the blessing of it. So the, the whole blog project is one of the most creative things I've ever seen kids do. I, I think you just hit on something real important from a mentorship model. Mm -hmm. The mentor cannot take the student somewhere where the mentor has not been. Yes. Uh, for two reasons. One, you're a liar. Mm -hmm. And second, the kids know you're a poser. If yes. you've not actually been through the journey yourself, they're not going to believe you. They're not going to go with you. So when I first learned of the cave analogy, I went to my spiritual conversion to Christ. And yes. I have very vivid memories uh, of that. So I, I equated this as a one-time event in life when I first read the cave analogy. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of my life, I live as a Christian. And so as the older I get, I've really applied this to a lot more avenues. And I think for parents who are listening to this, to hear my heart, the reason that you're sending your child to a Christian school, I am the poster child for the allegory of the cave. So if you teach this allegory from a secular point of view, you can be enlightened by anything. Yeah. Your guru, your yoga teacher, you can feel enlightened because you understand you know, the right kind of, I don't know, Close whatever. to buy, whatever you Anything. want, and, and you can stop the allegory right there. But I'm going to agree wholeheartedly with Rod that it is truly meant to be, uh, even, even the reference of the sun at the end, that we are meant to see the sun, which is the good, yeah. which is God. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what Plato means. Yeah. That is what Plato means by the ultimate enlightenment, if you will, would be seeing God face to face. The metaphysic. The metaphysical. That's being, right. Yes. That's what we share with Plato. Yeah. So the blessing of being here at a Christian school is that I don't just leave them with their vanilla interpretation right. of it, right. but I do get to share my story. So in brief, my story is this. At the ripe age of 17, I was going down many a wrong path, definitely chained inside, just seeing shadows of things, and desirous of truly understanding truth. Hmm. And I, I went, if you will, on a shopping spree and thought I would find religion somewhere. So I'm one of those odd people around here that has not grown up in a Christian environment and truly came to faith out of the blackness of my own despair and out of atheism. So as I'm trying thing after thing... How old were you when you uh, I was, came to Christ? I was a precocious 17-year-old. Okay. I really, really wanted to know what would happen if I died. Yeah. There was a fear aspect. Sure. And is there love in the universe? And, and it really meant the world to me. It meant all of the difference in the world to me. So I tell the kids about being invited, if you will, the first amount of fire that I was exposed to was a Bible study that someone invited me to from a group called the Navigators. Mm -hmm. And a very rigorous Bible study, and I'm totally raw atheist with all kinds of crazy ideas. And my Bible study leader patiently explained these things to me. 
And then ultimately in November of 1976, there was my true being dragged out of the cave. But the person who truly, I feel like, dragged me out was the Spirit of God himself. Dragged me into the light and where I, I was faced with my own sinfulness, faced with the grace that was before me, faced for the sacrifice on the cross, and truly felt that I had gone from the black and white into Oz and everything was on color. Mm. And, and I tell the kids that that conversion experience, which is the joy of it, has never left me. If anything, it's stronger than ever. Wow. I also was that person who went back to my family and said, wait, you've got this all wrong. Don't you guys understand? But and, you were pain to live with. Oh, I was a pain to live with. I was, I was relentless in, in... Go somewhere, go to college. Oh, my goodness. No, they couldn't, they couldn't get rid of me. And I have hounded my family. And I do have the joy to say that both my parents, after 30-plus years of me praying wow. for them, came to Christ. Jeannie, while you were talking, I was thinking of Francis Thompson's famous poem, The Hound of Heaven. Mm. because he describes his conversion to Christ as being chased by a hound hmm. in an unperturbed, unhurried pace. Mm-hmm. And so while you were talking about your conversion, in my head were stanzas from that poem, and mm. then you just said the Holy Spirit hounded you. Hounded me. Hounded you. Pursued me, pursues all of us relentlessly. And it's it's um, frightening. It is. And then when and then when he, when it's complete and it's conversion, then it's mm-hmm. you're light as a feather. Amen. There's a whole new world. Amen. So. A whole new world. Yeah. So it truly is a joy to share that with the kids and have them kind of reflect sure. on it. Many of them have grown up because of the wonderful parents we have here. They've grown up in a very secure, very Christian, Christ-filled, Bible-filled environment, and so for them at times. There's almost a need to go back to the strangeness and the mystery of what this thing is called yeah, faith. Exactly. I think teaching a mystery is a powerful thing. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, I think even even in that context, um, there are plenty of, of students that as they take your class and learn about this are in the midst of the cave or being dragged out of it. You know, yes. even from current understanding of faith to better understanding right. of faith. Right. I mean, that... Yes. that process is, you know, the cave process is one that mm-hmm. is ongoing and repeating, right? And right. Um, even right. for those who, who come to faith at a young age. And I think there's such a faith-building exercise in, in that, and, and almost it's and maybe, I don't want to say this too strong, but in a way it's what we want from our students, right? Yeah. To yeah. to embrace, you know, you go through the cave once, it's, it's really scary, it's yeah. uncertain. Yeah. Once you go through that journey a couple times and you see God's hand in it, you start yeah. to get ex- almost excited about, mm-hmm. like you said, the unknown and the mystery. You're making me think back, though, to this whole idea of having a guide or a mentor yeah. in this yeah. journey. Yeah. So in the original story, our poor fellow is dragged up into the light. And we've talked about the significant people who have impacted us. Yeah. Um, say a Bible study leader or a mentor in your life, and I think I think, you know, especially with a class like philosophy where people can get a little leery of like, well, what do you actually teach in there? And to know that it's because again you're at Santa Fe Christian, I'm not going to teach them that any light is the light. Right. That they have to learn how to be discerning to things that are truly just the flickering of flames on the walls and the muffled voices in the cave. And what does it truly mean to get out into the light? It's not the lights 
it is the light. Right. And so um, even Plato himself, you know, there are, there are incredible foreshadowing and hints to the person of Christ, even in Plato's Republic. Yep. So all truth that is God's truth is going to be light, but not all lights are the light we want them looking Some at. Some are borrowed light. Some are borrowed they're, light. They're there borrowed reflections. Yes. It's like fool's gold. Exactly. We've talked some about um, how this cave experience can happen over and over. How does that connect with, with what we want for our students in life as they, as they go on and experience their own cave situations? I, I, do, I do think the systemization of education could get, make it very rote, like we're just a factory. Mm-hmm. And we educators, I'm guilty of this, of just wanting predictability. Parents want predictability. They want the GPA set. We all understand the college industry sort of forces us into a system. And it's, it's sometimes maniacally painful. And if we're not careful, we actually squelch curiosity. Mm-hmm. And if I had to choose between all A's for my own children when they graduated or a, a real sense of curiosity of go learn the way the world works, I would have chosen curiosity. Because we're, what they've become, what my children have become since 18 just into their mid-20s, is very, very different than what I would have predicted mm-hmm. when they're 18. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a little bit, I've been able to see just among children that mm-hmm. they're actually more curious about the way the world works, than, and they're, they, were, they were less worried about the way the grade works. It's hard to, to, to detether it, but... Yeah, but we hear... I don't want to squelch curiosity. Right, I mean, we talk about, we use that phrase, lifelong learning yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah. And, and really, kind of what you're saying is we want, we want kids who see the littlest light to become aware, I'm in a cave, I gotta go run to that light, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Rather than there's having to, to be dragged through it. Yeah, right? there's more to know. Yeah. And go explore. Yeah. I have this nerdy fascination with economics and business, and, and a, a driving passion to make the philosophy class infinitely applicable to their own lives. So, for instance, they read Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle, parts of it, and then they have to write their own ethical code. And I, and I make them do some serious mental push-ups to figure out how does, how does their ethical stance apply and how is it tethered to maybe this Aristotelian, beautifully Judeo-Christian view of virtue as guiding our lives. So kind of everything that we're doing to expose them to the light, the light of Christ, the light of knowledge, uh, to light that in them, that there's so much more application to it. So like you said, curiosity, um, give them freedom to question and wonder, give them a chance to kind of crockpot ideas so that they can creatively present them in a way that's winsome and uh, get them to collaborate in class, get them to do things that I think they'll be doing in the future. They'll be collaborating. They'll be creating. They'll be thinking really, really hard and well. So and, and um, working with a team to solve a problem. Yes, like absolutely. They need to solve problems absolutely. with a group, not just on their own. Did you say winsome? Because you know that's one of Rod's favorite words. It is is it really? <laughs> it is. Like all my little lights went off. Yeah. Oh, I do like that word. If I were on social media, I would have gone like, yeah. like, 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 <laughs> yeah. like, 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 winsome. But I'm not. So, yes, uh, we do want to be winsome. <laughs> we do. Well, I, yes. I know that this conversation could last really for much of the day if we wanted it and to. And it may. Yes. We're just going to Yeah, we're just going to turn the mic off here in a sec. But thank you both for being here sure. and sharing your wisdom and your insights. And I appreciate it. And, uh, 
uh, we'll do this again. All right. Let's do it. Glad it's been be a pleasure. Here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks to those of you at home for listening to our Eagle Perspective podcast. We'll be back with more soon. 